So my name's Aaron, and what we're going to do today is we're going to continue. Really, it's the second half of a series that we started right before Easter called Knowing and Encountering God. And what we've been doing since Easter is looking at case studies from the Old Testament. And really, these case studies serve to show us how an encounter with God has the power to transform our lives, uh, generally speaking. But then we're applying this to some specific area of our lives as well. Um, and so thus far, what we've done is we've, we've looked at the life of Jacob, and we looked at how the encounter that he had with God allowed him to start processing and dealing with and healing from all the pain, all the bumps and bruises he picked up as a result of growing up in a dysfunctional childhood home. Uh, we looked at the encounter that Moses had with God at the burning bush, and we, and we talked about how that encounter that he had with God really gave Moses a deep sense of purpose. And then today what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at the life of a woman by the name of Hannah, uh, and, and her story is found in the first two chapters of, of 1 Samuel, and, and uh, I think this is just a, a pretty neat little side note here. Samuel actually is her son, uh, which is pretty wild that um, there's a book named after her son, but anyways, the opening two chapters are all about Samuel's mom, a woman named Hannah, and, and what we're going to find there is this fascinating story of this woman named Hannah who has an encounter with God um, that in, it somehow um, has the power to set her free of all the expectations that have been imposed on her by her culture, by her family, and even to some degree the, the expectations that she had imposed on herself. And so um, that story really stands to show us that an encounter with God has that kind of power, at least it can have that kind of power in our lives, to unseat, um, to release us from the chokehold that the, all the expectations people put on us, our culture puts on us, our families put on us, God can set us free of all that. And so uh, we're going to take a look at Hannah's story. It's in 1 Samuel. And uh, admittedly, I'm going to read a bunch of scripture this morning. Um, I'm not apologizing for that because I think reading a bunch of scripture is something you should be able to do at church. Just saying. So turn with me to 1 Samuel. I'm going to pick up in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18 is what I'll read there. And then we'll pivot over to chapter 2 and read verses 1 through 10. And here's what we have there. Um, <clears throat> there was a man from Remathim Zophim in the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives, the first named Hannah and the second named, or the second Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah was childless. This man would go up from his town every year to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were the Lord's priests. Whenever Elkanah offered a sacrifice, he always gave portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to each of her sons and daughters. But he gave a double portion to Hannah, for he loved her even though the Lord had kept her from conceiving. Her rival would taunt her severely just to provoke her because the Lord kept Hannah from conceiving. And whenever she went up to the Lord's house, her rival taunted her in this way every year. Hannah wept and would not eat. Hannah, why are you crying, her husband Elkanah asked. Why won't you eat? Why are you troubled? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Just a side note, if you ever encounter your wife crying, please don't say that to her. <laughs> um, especially if you got daughters. <laughs> Anyways, uh, here we're picking up in verse 9. Hannah got up after they ate and drank at Shiloh. Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's tabernacle. Deeply hurt, Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept with many tears. 
making a vow, she pleaded, Lord of hosts, if you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me, and give your servant a son, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and his hair will never be cut. While she continued praying in the Lord's presence, Eli watched her lips. Hannah was praying silently, and though her lips were moving, her voice could not be heard. Eli thought she was drunk and scolded her. How long are you going to be drunk? Get rid of your wine. No, my Lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman with a broken heart. I haven't had any wine or beer. I've been pouring out my heart before the Lord. Don't think of me as a wicked woman. I've been praying from the depth of my anguish and resentment. Eli responded, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant the petition you've requested from him. May your servant find favor with you, she replied. Then Hannah went on her way. She ate and no longer looked despondent. Now picking up in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, here's what Hannah prayed. My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is lifted up by the Lord. My mouth boasts over my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. And there is no rock like our God. Do not boast so proudly or let arrogant words come out of my mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and actions are weighed by him. The bows of the warriors are broken, but the feeble are clothed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are starving hunger no more. The woman who is childless gives birth to seven, but the woman with many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and gives life. He sends some to Sheol, and he raises others up. The Lord brings poverty and gives wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the garbage pile. He seats them with noblemen and gives them a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. He has not, or he has set the world on them. He guards the steps of his faithful ones, but the wicked perish in darkness. For a man does not prevail by his own strength. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give power to his king. He will lift up the horn of his anointed. Amen um, to every bit of what, what Hannah's praying. And there's a lot going on there in those two chapters. And basically what we just read, it's a narrative of Hannah's life. And where we find her at the beginning of this narrative is she's in the depth of despair. She, she's, she's in a really dark place. She's processing some deep pain and deep, deep anguish. And from my vantage point, what it seems like is all the pressure she's been under because of her culture's expectations because of her family's expectations, and to some extent, the expectations that she's placed on herself, they're really just becoming too much for her to bear. And so her whole life, she's been told who she's supposed to be and what she's supposed to accomplish in order to actually find meaning and value in life, and actually to or, in order to actually matter. And so she's been inundated by this, this sense of cultural and social pressure, and then on top of that, her family's a mess, uh, her marriage is a mess, and she's furthermore being crushed by the weight of her own inability to live up to whatever's been expected of her. And I got to go out on a limb and say, Hannah is not at a place in life where she's, she's, she's arrived to what she envisioned her life being like. There have been some plot twists and some turns that she didn't anticipate, and she's in a really dark place. And then, and then what we're going to learn as we, re- as we read on, what we see is that because of God's faithfulness, and because of the grace of God at work in her life, something changes. And and through her deep pain, God leads Hannah into an encounter with himself that actually transforms Hannah's life. And I think what Hannah's 
story shows us, what Hannah's life shows us is that an encounter with God has the power to liberate us from being controlled by the expectations imposed on us by our culture, our families, or even ourselves. And so with that, there are three things I want to try to draw out of this story that really I think will only help us come to deeper grips with how an encounter with God has the power to liberate us from the pressures imposed on us, whether they're external or internal. And those three things are, I want to, I want to walk you through the depth of Hannah's pain. And I think, I think Hannah is carrying around with her a pain that we can all relate to on some level. And so I think this is going to be, it's going to just be highly practical from my vantage point to, to understand the depth of her pain. And then, and then in addition to that, I want to show you the encounter that Hannah has through prayer with God that actually transforms her heart. And then thirdly, I want to talk about the power behind Hannah's prayer. So, so let's start with the depth of Hannah's pain. And there, there are a few places, if you, if you look at them individually and collectively, I think what you're going to see is a picture of how painful life can become when the expectations imposed on us just go unchecked, unfiltered, unaddressed. Listen to verse 10. Deeply hurt, Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept with many tears. Then you move down to verses 15 and 16, and I think this is Hannah just inviting us all the way into her pain. And what's happening here is she's talking to the priest Eli. He's the priest of the temple where she had gone to pray. And from what he can see, there's something deeply wrong with Hannah. And in fact, he's just convinced that she's had a little bit too much to drink, and so he confronts her. But listen to what Hannah says in response. She says, I'm a woman with a broken heart. I haven't had any wine or beer. I've been pouring out my heart before the Lord. Don't think of me as a wicked woman. I've been praying from the depth of my anguish and resentment. And so I think what's really apparent is Hannah is not only being influenced by the expectations of her culture. She's actually at a point in her life where she's, her life's being kind of controlled by those expectations. And then, and then you, you, what we'll see is there's, there's injury added to insult because you have Penina, her husband Elkanah's other wife. Um, she's part of this polygamous marriage. And, and Penina, really, what she serves as is a constant reminder that Hannah can't have children. She's rubbing salt in Hannah's wounded soul to the point that Hannah is provoked to anger and we're told resentment. She's not eating, she's not sleeping. She's in deep pain. And I think if, if, if Hannah walked into a psychologist's office or a psychiatrist's office, there's a strong chance that she'd be diagnosed with clinical depression given the symptoms that she's presenting. But, but, but back to the story. Hannah's not childless by choice. She, she actually can't have children. And there's a degree to which I think we can generally sympathize with Hannah. And I think there are people who are here today or listening to this um, today that, that can sympathize with Hannah's pain specifically. Um, but I do think there's a degree to which the, soul, the social and cultural weight that's been put on her because of the cultural paradigm in which Hannah is living um, caused this pain to cut a little bit deeper than we might realize. You see, I, I think um, maybe you'd agree with this, but I think childlessness in our culture is much different. It's viewed much differently than childlessness was viewed in ancient cultures or even in some non-Western cultures today. In our culture, um, people who don't have children, oftentimes it's assumed that they're doing that by personal choice. And then there's there, a the tendency to view people who have an empty nest or who are childless as people who have a social advantage. They can kind of move about at their own leisure. They can pursue the career path they want to pursue, pursue the activities and the hobbies and the travel that they want to do unimpeded 
by the responsibility of having children. And so um, it's much different. It was much different in Hannah's culture. In ancient societies, having children was, was directly tied to how people viewed your economic status, your wealth, and your social credibility. And in fact, having large families, what it really afforded you was a, was a, was a greater degree of economic stability. Your family had more earning potential. It also provided you a deeper degree of future security, meaning you're counting on these children to take care of you into your old age. They were basically like your 401k, your retirement benefit. Um, and that's not a slight against kids. That's just how it was because none of those things existed then. And then if you zoom all the way out and you look at, look at this through a societal lens, large families were a form of national security. Birth rate was a form of national security. Higher birth rate, bigger military, better odds in battle against your enemies. And so you have all these things at work, but in essence, ch children weren't really seen as a burden. They were seen as a status symbol, a sign of strength. And so women who had many children were applauded as people who were living up to the highest ideals of the culture. And so in our culture, I think as you know, the dynamics are a little different. Having children is viewed as more of a, a personal choice. And so for Hannah, um, this, was, this, was, this was a matter of enormous cultural pressure. It was almost a matter of life and death for Hannah. The weight she was under wasn't because she just had a general desire to have children. The culture she was a part of had imposed an enormous pressure on women to have children. And so all her life, uh, I think she's either been told explicitly or implicitly that for her life to really matter, she needed to have a lot of children. And, this was a, and I'd say this was a cultural paradigm. It didn't necessarily force women or force people into idolizing family and children, but it certainly created the circumstances for that. And I think there's a degree to which that's at work in Hannah's life, where, where Hannah, because of the cultural context in which she lived, she was kind of pushed towards building her identity around her ability to have children. I think in a way, Hannah was pushed towards that. Women in ancient cultures were pushed towards making an idol of children and family. And I realize that, you know, the, the word idolatry can, can like come off strong. And so let me try to frame this in a way that, that I think is a little, help, a little more helpful than just saying um, idolatry. Uh, so an idol... I think what it really ultimately is, it's, it's when you take a good thing and you make it the ultimate thing. And idolatry happens when you take a good thing that you should enjoy, like having children, and you make it the center of your life. And if you're wondering, like if you want a litmus test to, to try to discover how you know something's at the center of your life, uh, I think this can be helpful. You know something's at the center of your life when that thing or that person has the power to make or break you. And so idolatry happens when we take something or we take someone and we live our lives as if that something or that someone is what gives us ultimate honor. It what make, it's what makes us worthwhile. It's, it's what makes us matter. And it's what gives us meaning in life more so than our relationship with God. And so whenever we take something or someone other than God and we put it at the center of our lives... Whatever that thing is or whoever that person is becomes our functional savior. They become or it becomes our, our ultimate hope. But even, even more so than that, and I think this is more dangerous than anything I've mentioned thus far. More dangerously, whoever that is or whatever that is becomes the very thing that has the power to crush you. 
And it's not like there are some cultures that have this component and others that don't. Every culture has things that it props up, that it, and, and when it props those things up, basically the message to the adherents of that culture is you've got to build your life around that. You've got to accomplish that. You've got to do that in order to actually matter. That dynamic wasn't just true of ancient cultures. Every culture puts pressure on its adherents to be or do certain things in order to really matter in this life. And I have a friend that actually someone that I recently met um, who she's a woman from Afghanistan and she works as a photographer. And, it, and over the course of her career, she's had the privilege of covering the war in Afghanistan for like a decade and a half. And back in 2016, uh, she was interviewed about her work and the interest in her work was, um, was basically like twofold. A, she's a woman and she's a photographer. You put those two things together, that had never really happened in a cultural context like Afghanistan. So as you can imagine, it was kind of jarring for her family and for people in that culture. But listen to what she said in the interview. She said, at the beginning, my family did not accept that I became a photographer. When they saw the camera, they said, what are you doing? This doesn't give you meaning in life. Why are you doing this? And I think, I think in, that, in that short statement, what she was really highlighting is how every culture has some paradigm from which people derive their ultimate meaning and value. Now, Afghan culture is very similar to, to, to the ancient culture of Hannah, but in so many ways, it is different than our individualist culture, the one, the one in which we live and we're navigating right now. Our culture doesn't necessarily put the same demands on women, but it still puts demands on women. Our culture doesn't demand that women have many children in order to matter, but it does demand other things from women. Things like having a successful career or having the right physical beauty or, or having a sense of independence or confidence or strength. And all of those things, what they end up becoming are unbearable weights the moment someone can't achieve them. And so what I'm really getting at is that every culture puts expectations and pressures on people in a way that makes us feel like we only matter if we live up to those expectations. And you either live up to them or you don't. Every culture on some level puts expectations and pressures on women, children, men, young people, old people. And those expectations, by and large, come across as demands that you either are able to live up to or not. They're things that the culture would say matter most. And when we do those things or accomplish those things, that's when we matter most. And what ultimately, what I'm arguing is that there's not a culture under the sun that doesn't do this. Every culture puts certain things in front of people that aren't God, and the message to those people is you must have this, do this, achieve this, or accomplish this, or you don't measure up. And whatever the this is ends up becoming the thing that has the power to destroy our lives. And so the point here, to just to distill this, is that building our lives on anything other or anything or anyone other than God will eventually become an unbearable weight that crushes us. And so if you build your life on having children or having this perfect family, what, what, what you end up doing is you run the risk of crushing yourself, crushing your kids, crushing your, your spouse under the weight of your expectations. And if you build your life on, on romantic love or romance, 
you end up running the same risk of crushing yourself and your family and your relationships all under the weight of your, your expectations. Same, as, same could be said for building your life on career success or money or achievement. All those things serve you well as long as you're successful, but the moment you fail is the moment those things become a weight that you just can't bear, and they'll suck the life and the joy right out of you. And so there's no such thing as a culture without expectations, and I'll take it as far as say there really isn't a such thing as a person who doesn't have expectations. And so what we have happening, what's unfolding in Hannah's life, what's causing the depth of her pain is that the, the, the weight of those cultural expectations are just crushing her. And her soul's crying out in anguish. She's being crushed by the grief and the pain of feeling like she's not enough. And so there's a depth to her pain that really starts to seem inescapable. But what we're going to find is somehow she escapes. Somehow things turn around. Somehow things get reversed. And so the question is how? And I think it's a practical question to ask for us because I think we're in a similar situation as Hannah. And then the question is this, how do you escape the weight of that kind of debilitating pain and the weight of those debilitating expectations that get imposed on us either externally or internally? How do you escape that? And I think the short answer to that is an encounter with God. And it's not just a generic encounter with God. It's an encounter with God that starts to unseat and reveal those expectations as the things that we're, we're building our lives on. And, and I'd argue that this isn't a one-time experience. You don't have, have an encounter with God and then, you know, you're, you're free and clear and you're never going to wrestle with anything ever again. At least it hasn't been in my life. I, I, I see this as more of like a lifelong journey of following Jesus. And all you're trying to do is trust him every single step of the way as he brings out what's hidden in the deep recesses of your heart and reveals to you what you're building your life on that really just never, never amounts to being enough. And you allow him the space to unseat those idols in your life so that you can recenter your life on Jesus. And so, so, so just um, we've talked a little bit about, we've talked a lot actually about the depth of Hannah's pain. And so we're going to transition now. And I want to show you the transformation that takes place in her heart as she has this encounter with God through prayer. prayer. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 17. Eli responded, go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant the petition you've requested from him. May your servant find favor with you, she replied. Then Hannah went on her way. She ate and no longer looked despondent. Like so something changed in Hannah. And so um, Hannah was dealing with the, the crushing expectations of her culture. She's part of this family constellation that's an absolute mess. Her husband Elkanah, He's got two wives. That in and of itself is absolutely insane. And, 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 and he comes up with the brilliant plan. Uh, one wife has many children. Hannah can't have any. And his brilliant plan to, to, to solve all that is by, by telling Hannah that he loves her more. Um, and it doesn't work. It actually backfires. It infuriates Penina, who does everything that she can to make Hannah's life absolutely miserable, she becomes this constant nagging reminder to Hannah that she just doesn't measure up. The family's an absolute mess. And I think, just as a side note here, it's important to point out that um, Elkanah's polygamous marriage, what you're never going to find in Scripture, you could search from cover to cover. You're never going to find an argument, a biblical argument in favor of Polygamy. What you will find is that polygamy is consistently depicted as a terrible idea. It's consistently depicted as something that exploits women, 
ruins families, distorts relationships. But what the Bible does validate when it comes to a, a marital relationship is that marriage is, is, is best suited when it's a monogamous commitment between a man and woman throughout the course of someone's lifetime. And here's what it comes with. <laughs> a degree of joy and pain and sorrow and celebration and everything in between. And so I just wanted to point that out because I think it's helpful to, 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 to just put that before you as we, you know, contemplate, well, what is it, like Elkanah has two wives. What do we actually do with that? So you reconcile that by saying the Bible always points that out as not, not the way that God's designed relationships. And so another thing I want to point out is what Elkanah and Penina represent. What I think they represent are two voices that are in the ear of Hannah incessantly. Right? One of them is the voice of Penina, and what that represents is, is what the highest hope of society was, which was the hope of family, the hope of children. And Penina is constantly like ridiculing Hannah with this message that, hey, this highest hope that our culture has, you're not living up to it. And then Elkanah, what he represents is this alternate voice in the culture that says, well, hey, wait a second, you, know, you don't necessarily have to have many children and have family. What you really need to actually matter is romantic spousal love. That's the voice that's the voice of Elkanah. And so Hannah has this constant pressure from these two voices to build her life around these two expectations. But then what we find is there's a third voice that's speaking into Hannah's life. And I think to this point, we've talked kind of, or I've spoken kind of disparagingly about Hannah's culture. But there was an aspect of Hannah's culture that I think gave her the resources, gave her the know-how to know how to respond to her deep pain and anguish. I think it prepared her for the moment that she found herself in. It had placed tons of demands on her, but there were some good things about it as well. And I think the same could be argued for any culture. And what it, what it taught her to do was to turn to God in prayer in the face of her deep pain. Somehow she'd learned this message that God's heart was very much for people who find themselves in this deep place of suffering. I think somehow she learned that it was most appropriate to give honest voice to your pain and to counter the debilitating power of expectations with the counter voice of the truth of God. And so what Hannah doesn't do amidst all of this, she doesn't resign herself to the message that she doesn't measure up. She definitely wrestles with it, but she doesn't resign herself to that. And she also doesn't force herself to believe the notion that all she needs is the love of her husband to make it through. She doesn't force herself to believe that either. 1 Samuel 1.9, here's, here's what we end up reading there. It says, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. And this is a picture of Hannah's response to all of that. And it looks like a really tiny detail, but what it represents is this powerful transformation that's starting to unfold in Hannah's heart. And it's way more powerful than someone just getting up after they forced themselves to eat. You see, that word arose or the word got up doesn't mean that Hannah simply got up. To arise in Hebrew, what it meant is you were beginning to make an intentional effort to do something. It meant that you were going to stop passively moving through life. It meant that you were going to stop allowing the expectations of the culture, the expectations of your family, or the, own, or the expectations that you've imposed on yourself to dictate who you really are. What it meant was you were going to start looking at your pain, you were going to start processing your own self-image, and you were going to start filtering the expectation, expectations imposed on you through the, through the truth of who God is. That's what it means when Hannah arose. And she arose to pray. 
And what she was beginning to do when she arose to pray is reject the expectations of the culture that said the only way to matter was to have lots of children. And to reject the notion that all she needed to get through this life was the romantic love of her husband. That all she needed was to build her life on whatever the culture said was expected of her. And I think maybe for the first time, what Hannah was doing is she was beginning to get clarity and see how dangerous it is to build your life on anything other than God. I think she's beginning to see how the expectations and the pressures that our culture places on us, that other people place on us, that we place on ourselves, really end up functioning as traps that'll suck the life and the joy right out of us. And so what she does next, I think what she does next, I think it does give us a glimpse that, that Hannah didn't arise on her own strength. She was only able to walk away from the expectations of the culture because what, she, what ultimately was having, happening is Hannah was having an encounter with God. And so she's turning from the crushing weight of the culture, and she's turning towards God, and she's praying. And what she begins to do is what I think we should begin to do if we find ourselves in a situation like Hannah's. She just simply starts reminding herself of who God is and what he's capable of. Listen to the first thing she says. She says, Lord Almighty. And that might sound like a super generic way to start a prayer, but in Hebrew that means Yahweh Sabaoth, which means Lord of hosts. Lord of multitudes, Lord of armies. It's a phrase that literally references the infinite power and omnipotence of God. Hannah is having an encounter with God through prayer that's reminding her that God is all-powerful. He's all-controlling. He's sovereign. And she's remembering the infinite justice and the infinite magnificence and the infinite brilliance and the infinite love of God. And then next, what she's going to say is something that I think, I think this is huge. This is huge. It shows us how personally involved God is in our lives. It shows us that God has a heart for people who are suffering. Here's what she says. If you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant. What she's saying, what Hannah is getting at is that, God, you are powerful Yet you are so loving that the broken heart of a barren, rejected, obscure woman actually matters to you. Hannah's encountering God as she meditates on how infinitely powerful he is and infinitely loving he is all at the same time. And what I think she's really saying is, God, you have the power to completely change my circumstances. But even if you don't, your love can carry me through the most painful of circumstances. I think Hannah is encountering God in a way that allows her to take the deepest sorrows of her soul. It allows her to take her deepest pain and pour them out into the reality of who God is. She doesn't have to be dishonest about what she's feeling. She doesn't have to be dishonest about her pain. She can pour that out in a raw way in the presence of God. And I think that's what starts to transform her heart. And this is what I, what I see this as is an invitation for people like us who tend to get wrapped up in the expectations of the culture or the pressures, pressures of our family or the pressures of our careers or the weight we just put on ourselves for no good reason at all. I think it's an invitation for us to take our deepest emotions, our deepest pains, and our deepest sorrows associated with all the ways 
We haven't lived up to whatever expectation has been driving our lives. And we're able to pour them into God's presence and begin processing all of that pain, not in light of who we are, but in light of who God is. It's an invitation to stop forcing yourself to believe that anything other than God will be enough. This is what changes Hannah's heart. This is what frees her from the weight of the cultural expectations and all the pressures that she's under. And I think what we start to see is a clear picture of Hannah's transformation in verse 11. She prays, Lord Almighty, if you will only look at your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And no razor will ever be used on his head. Now, now I realize that if you read this on a surface level, you could, you could say, well, isn't she just kind of negotiating with God? Isn't, isn't Hannah saying like, well, God, I'm in this bind, and if you do this, I'll do that. But that's not what she's doing. What she's doing is, is, is she's surrendering her highest hope, the, high, the, the hope of having a son. She's surrendering that to God. She's proclaiming and surrendering her highest hope to God that she really just wants her life to be completely centered on God. And here's how. When Hannah vows to give her son to the Lord and she makes this proclamation that no razor will ever touch his head, meaning he's never going to get a, a haircut, what she's really saying is that, God, I've come to a conclusion. Through all this pain and all the distress and all the ridicule and all the rejection, I've come to realize that the only thing worth building my life on is you. And for the longest time, Hannah's saying, for the longest time, all I've wanted was a son. And if I, now she's saying, if I ever have the privilege of having one, I don't want to build my life on him. I want to build my life on you so that I can be the kind of mother that leads him to build his life on you. I want to be completely yours. I want my children to be completely yours because our lives are safest in your hands. You see, in, in Hannah's day, when she makes this pro proclamation, what she was ultimately saying is, I want my son to serve the house of God. I want my son to become a priest. And in Hannah's day, there were only two pathways to that. One was you were born into it, meaning you were a Levite. The other was you took, the you took a vow. You took the Nazarite vow. And that's what Hannah's talking about because she's not a Levite. And her son wouldn't have been a Levite by birth either. She was saying, my son will take the Nazarite vow. And a Nazarite was a per person from another tribe who lived in the tabernacle from the time that they were a child. And there were two marks to being a Nazarite. One is, you never got a haircut. Clearly not a Nazarite. Um, <laughs> I really like getting a haircut just as a side note. Anyways, doesn't make me any less in the eyes of the Lord. Um, so the two marks of being a Nazarite, you never got a haircut and you had to abstain from drinking. And so that's a snapshot of what it means to be a Nazarite. But that's not really what this passage is about. It's not about what it means to be a Nazarite. It's more important that we see what Hannah's doing. Look, in vowing to allow her son to become a Nazarite, Hannah was forfeiting all the benefits that would have come with having a child. That economic security, the future stability, the, the, the national security that would have been afforded to her, to, her, to her whole culture as a result of having many, many children. She's forfeiting all of that. She's forfeiting her highest hope to God because God was, in a sense, becoming Hannah's highest hope. See, all her life, all she wanted was, was a child. She wanted to be a mother. And now she's vowing to give all of that up. Something has shifted in her life. And she's not resigning to the fact that she's never going to have children. Something's shifting. Something's changing. Something's, being, something's transforming Hannah. And so what she's saying is, God, if I have a child, I want him to be yours. I want my life to be centered on you. If I, if I have children, I want their lives 
to be centered on you. And I want them to experience the freedom from all these cultural traps and expectations that really just become a burden that no one can bear. Something's shifted in Hannah's life. And we get a glimpse of it in verse 11, but then we get more clarity about it in verse 18 when we hear Hannah say, may your servant find favor with you, she replied. But then listen to what happens in Hannah's life. It says, then Hannah went on her way. She ate and no longer looked despondent. Something radically changed in Hannah. She encountered God and it changed her. And she had an encounter with God through pouring out her deepest pain in the presence of God through prayer. And it transformed her heart. It changed her. Her despondence is beginning to evaporate. Now, now you have to remember, she's still childless at this point. She's still living under the same circumstances. She still has a Penina to listen to. And she still has Elkanah as her husband. That hasn't changed. She still has to face the same pressures in life. But for some reason, her despondence is gone. And what it doesn't mean, and I don't think this is what it ever means when the Bible says there was a transition in someone's life, it doesn't mean that she was never going to experience despondence again. What it means is that Hannah's God is the kind of God that works through our deepest pains to transform us and deeply form us more into his likeness and image. You, you can bank on the fact that Hannah probably experienced despondence again. Because when you, as the story goes, she does get pregnant and she does have a son. And she does turn him over under, under Eli's care. And he becomes a priest. And he becomes the prophet Samuel. And what that meant for Hannah is she was giving up access to her son. What she asked for actually happened. And I would imagine she wrestled with that over the years. But God's the kind of God that shows up every time we find ourselves in distress. And he does a work, a faithful work in our hearts to transform us and set us free of that kind of thing. And so Hannah encountered God, and it changed, it changed her. And at the time, she had no idea she was going to get pregnant. Her despondence ceased. And she's being liberated from these cultural expectations before any of that ever happened. And so that's the, that's the transformation in Hannah's heart. But lastly, what I want to show you is the power behind Hannah's prayer. And I think it's really important to understand this, because if you don't, you might assume that Hannah somehow conjured up the energy and the strength on her own. But that's simply not the case. And I think if Hannah were here today and we said, hey, Hannah, how'd you do it? How'd you get from point A to point B? How'd you get from this place of deep despair and pain and despondence to like your, your despondence is gone and you're now walking in joy and now you have a sense of like a deep sense of value and acceptance? How'd you do it? I think she would say, I don't know. I don't really know how it worked. All I do know is when I poured out my pain in the presence of a faithful God, that faithful God showed up and he started to change my life in ways that I don't even know how to talk about yet. But listen to what Hannah prays in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1. And I think this is a picture of this transformation she experienced. And it's a picture of the power at work in her. She says, my heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is lifted up by the Lord. My mouth boasts over my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There's no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. And there is no rock like our God. Not a mention of herself in there whatsoever. She is proclaiming the faithful, loving power of the God that changed her heart. And she's reminding her heart of the greatness of God. And this was the power at work in her life. And so she goes on in this prayer. If you read this prayer line 
after line. What she, what she gives us is a picture of a God who responds personally to people in distress. She gives us a picture of a God who can turn things around. She gives us a picture of a God who absorbs our pain and brings healing. And as Hannah prays, what she's ultimately showing us is the power of God at work in a way that strips the power of this world of its power over people like us. He's a God of reversal. That's Hannah's God. He's a God capable of working all things together for good, even the painful things. And when we encounter God, he doesn't always solve all of our problems or change our circumstances, but what he does is he breaks the power of our circumstances over us. He breaks the power, he breaks the chain of sin in our lives. He liberates us from the weight of all those expectations that are imposed on us and that we impose on ourselves. An encounter with God is capable of reversing things. And I'm not talking about in a literal sense. I'm talking about in the sense that all of those things that have had power over you in your life can become completely powerless over you because of the, the power and presence of God at work in your life. And so Hannah's prayer, what it really is, is it's line after line of her reminding herself of God's faithfulness and God's love and God's power to liberate people from the oppressive cultural expectations. And when she gets to verse 8, she says something very specific. She says, he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the garbage pile. He seats them with noble men and gives them a throne of honor. And I don't think Hannah had any idea that, that when she said that line, when she spoke that prayer, what she was doing is she was painting a powerful picture of how God would one day completely resolve all the terrible things we face in this life. See, in Hannah's day, ash heaps were garbage dumps that were typically located outside of the city. And what they were were just these smoldering mountains of garbage. And you know the people who found belonging in those ash heaps? Those were the poor. Those were people who didn't measure up. They were the social outcasts. They were the people who'd been condemned by society and culture because they didn't live up to the expectations. Right? And, and, and Hannah is talking about God as the kind of God who enters the ash heap. And he doesn't enter the ash heap to condemn the people who are there or to remind them of all the ways that they failed to live up to his expectations or to tell them that they belong there. God shows up to the ash heap to liberate them and to bring healing and restoration and flourishing. You see, God, God cares about the poor. He cares about people who don't measure up. He cares deeply about people who've blown it. People who are being crushed by the weight of whatever expectations have been imposed on us. And he cares about us in a way that restores our dignity and sets us up with princes and places of honor. Verse 8, what it is, is it's a picture of ultimate restoration and healing. It's the ultimate restoration and healing that, that Hannah's soul was longing for. I think it's the one that I'm longing for and I'm going to go out on a limb and I think it's the kind that you're longing for as well. And so, but, but there's one thing, there's one thing here that I don't think was clear, and I think it's important and it's helpful to point out. One thing that never, that, that just isn't clear to me in Hannah's story um, is, is whether Hannah knew exactly how God would use her deep pain to liberate her from that crushing weight of her culture's expectations. You know the other thing that's not clear? I don't even think it's clear that she ever got to a point in her life where she could say, you know what, it all makes sense now. All that pain I endured, now I know why. It all makes sense. Now I know why I had to suffer for so long. That, it's not clear. There's no, there's no explanation like that in Hannah's narrative. But you know what is clear? 
that her encounter with God through prayer liberated her from being crushed by the gravity of her pain and the weight of the expectations of her culture and her family and the expectations she'd placed on herself. And I don't think Hannah had any idea when she prayed this prayer that she was painting such a powerful picture that of what God would eventually do one day through his son Jesus, who allowed himself to be crucified outside of the gates of Jerusalem over that ash heap in the most disgraceful of ways. I don't think Hannah had any idea that she was painting such a clear picture of what would, what would come. And I don't think she had any idea that she was talking about Jesus who would not just enter the ashes, but he would rise from the ashes and show us that our God, Hannah's God, is the kind of God that brings life out of death, his own death. He's the kind of God that brings healing through suffering, his own suffering. He's the kind of God that brings acceptance through rejection, his own rejection. Through Hannah, God was giving us a foretaste of the work of Jesus who doesn't just enter our pain and he wasn't just crucified in the ash heap. He experienced absolute rejection and humiliation and disgrace and the punishment that we deserved. Because of Jesus, we can experience the reversal that Hannah was talking about. And we can pour out every bit of our pain and bear our souls to God in prayer in a way that will bring healing. And we can experience the transformation that comes through an encounter with God that actually liberates us from the crushing weight of the expectations imposed on us. Either the ones we put on ourselves, the ones our culture puts on us, the the ones the people around us put on us. We can be liberated from all of that. That's what Hannah's story shows us. It shows us a picture of Jesus, the ultimate liberator. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, um, God, we're, we just want to be a grateful people. We want to be the kind of people that um, w- when it really boils down to it, when it comes down to it, we see you as, as our God, as, as a God that there is, there's no one like you. There's no one like the rock, our God. Let that become an earnest prayer that we have. Let us believe the way that Hannah believed and trust the way that Hannah trusted And allow us to do that knowing that we've got a more clear picture of what you're capable of than she ever had. And and the reason we have that is because you sent your son Jesus. And he revealed revealed you to us in a way that that, um, is beyond amazing. Captivate us by your love, Jesus. And allow that to continually transform us into the kind of people who, who walk in freedom. The freedom of the gospel. God, we love you so much. In your holy name we pray. Amen.